Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be completely yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, we've talked about the two dominical sacraments, which are what? Baptism and the Eucharist. Now, why are they called dominical sacraments? (laughs) Because Jesus told us to do it, right? And not only that, but they are considered to be what? Generally necessary for salvation. All right, good. Everybody's been listening, or at least some of you have been listening. Uh, They are considered to be generally necessary for salvation. Why? Because that's what Jesus said, <laughs> and and uh, and I would I would add to that that uh, that uh, of course God can do it whatever He wants, and and um, but it's that uh, keep in mind that um, we are saved by grace, are we not? Okay, we are saved by grace, and the grace of those sacraments is immense. I mean, remember last week's baptism. What did we say about those children? That was last week, right? You were all here? Okay, good. We said a lot, right? I think that's, that's really the point. But, but think about it. I mean, just consider all... I mean, let's even think about that. All, all the places where water appears in Scripture. Name some. The Red Sea. In the desert, the rock, right? And who is the rock, do we find out later? Christ. The flood. The woman at the well. Yes? Um, just time and time again. And, and all of those are tied to what? Salvation, right? So the people are saved out of the Red Sea. Um, Noah and his family are saved out of the flood. Um, the woman at the well, what's, what is she told? Not that, not that, not that not that, uh, not that this water, you know, she knows the water doesn't assuage the deepest thirst that she has. And what does Jesus tell her about the, the well, this, this supernatural well? The live, living water springing up to eternal life. Okay? So when we, when we baptize, we, we talk about things like being reborn, yes? And we talk about things like being washed of sin. Um, in the Eucharist, what do we speak about? Well, what are the words that are said to you as you receive? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Okay, so that's the first part. The second part is, take and eat this, and remember that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Do so you see the connections there? All the all of the all of the sacraments are tied explicitly to faith. Yes, so he says you were saved by grace through faith. Okay, um, it's the conviction of, of of Anglicans and indeed all Catholic Christians that um, in, that uh, that when we speak of being saved by grace through faith, we're speaking about uh, a faith that has a sacramental character. Right? That uh, the invisible things of God become visible, in a sense. Um, and they are worked out through visible means. Okay, so these later five sacraments, we've mentioned two so far. We've talked about confirmation, and we've talked about confession. Today we're going to talk about ordination, and probably we're going to talk about marriage if we can get to it. Um, So if you want to ask a bunch of questions about ordination, that's fine. We'll just deal with ordination. If you want to talk about marriage as well, we'll talk about marriage as well. Okay, we're we're on page 64. It's question 122. All right. Um, just as a bit of a preface, this, this sacrament is classically called holy orders, and we'll say a little bit more about orders, but um, orders in the church are uh, groupings of people, um, and, uh, and as uh, one particular uh, guy that I, that I often look to in this, he says, the, the orders show forth um, God's plan of salvation. 
Um, and so there are lots of orders in the church, but these, these, uh, these, this is particular. So question 122, what is ordination? Through prayer and the laying on of the bishop's hands, ordination consecrates, authorizes, and empowers persons called to serve Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacrament. Okay. Anglicans will always tell you, what do we do? What do we do on Sunday mornings? Word and sacrament, yeah? The two parts of the liturgy are what? The liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table or the liturgy of the, uh, the great uh, Thanksgiving or however, I mean, there, there are a million ways to think about it, uh, but it is both word and sacrament. And indeed, those two are not kept separate, are they? But one speaks to the other and backwards and forwards, right? Um, through prayer and the laying on of the bishop's hands, we'll say more about that in the future, ordination consecrates, authorizes, empowers persons called to serve Christ and his church in the ministry of word and sacrament. So there are three actions. Consecrate. What does it mean to consecrate? To set apart, yes? That's, that's what the Latin means anyway. <laughs> but consecrate means to set apart. Um, uh, this, this building, yes, is a church. Um, how do you know it's a church? It looks like one, right? Um, but, but even more so, we worship in it, yes? So it has been set apart to a purpose. Now, of course, this building, I don't know, I don't know what the Lutherans did to it, but I don't know what the Baptists did to it. But, but when we moved in here, we consecrated it for the use of our congregation. We walked around with holy water. We set it apart. Okay. Um, so... Uh, Ordination is about consecrating, about setting apart. Ordination also authorizes, um, meaning that uh, it gives permission in a sense, um, gives uh, authority, even a better way, and empowers. So the understanding we have is not only that you are set apart, not only that, uh, that a priest or a deacon or a bishop is, has authority, but also that they have power. Um, uh, and, and whose power is it? It's God's power through the Holy Spirit. Empowers persons to call to serve Christ in his church in the ministry of word and sacraments. Um, Anglicanism is always required, and this is quite important, uh, that hands be laid on someone uh, in order to ordain them. Um, we've never dispensed with that. Why do we, why do we stick to that? Because it's in the Bible, right? <laughs> time and time again, uh, this, this, this phrase, laying on of hands, laying on of hands. Um, uh, you remember Paul and Barnabas are set apart to go to Antioch? This is, uh, I believe it's, it's chapter 8 of Acts of the Apostles, or is it 9? I forget it. Well, it's one of those. But they're set apart by what? Well, first they fast, and then they lay on hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out. Um, we see this time and time again. Uh, first, first Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. Um, Paul refers to this gift which is in Timothy by the laying on of his hands. Um, in addition to that, Acts chapter 6, we see in Acts chapter 6 the, uh, the deacons are set apart. The seven deacons are set apart. How are they set apart? Through the laying on of hands. So hands are laid on. Um, when bishops are consecrated, I should note this, when bishops are consecrated, usually, uh, and indeed by, by canon in most churches, um, there's a requirement that there be three bishops or more uh, to participate in the laying on of hands of a bishop. Now, that is to make sure that that bishop is duly consecrated, duly set apart. Um, we refer to this, and this doesn't appear in the catechism, we refer, we refer to this as apostolic succession. Um, and I want to say a bit about that. The understanding in, in Anglicanism, indeed uh, Roman Catholicism is, and Eastern Orthodoxy is that uh, that the bishops are successors to the apostles through the laying on of hands. Um, that uh, it's not only a succession of um, authority, but a succession of office and a succession of sacramental uh, empowerment. Um, so, in, indeed, if you uh, if you go to some churches in our diocese, the bishop will have the apostol or the the parish will have the apostolic succession chart up on the wall. You can trace it all the way back, and it's it's quite it's quite fascinating actually. Um, and the reason the reason that that is is so important is that uh, the, the church expresses outward continuity with the past in this way. 
It's also that, and keep in mind, sacraments are not only we hope that this is the case, right? And we don't just say, well, we really hope that you're going to get the body and blood of Christ today. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but we're not sure, so we're going to try. But we never say that, do we? When I stand there and say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean it. Um, in addition to that, in baptism, we don't ever say, you know, we kind of hope that some people are going to receive the Holy Spirit today. We're not quite sure. It might happen, might not happen. We're not sure. Right? We don't come at this with a, from a perspective of uncertainty. We say sure and certain. Um, and for that reason, and I really want to say this as clearly as I can, uh, Anglicanism has a very charitable position towards those who hold orders from other churches. Right? It's to say, um, you know, we, 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 uh, we think of you, uh, hey, um, you know, I think there's been, a very, there's been a very charitable position on that, which is that uh, you're, you're even, like, ordained, you, uh, you serve in this role. Um, but in our canons, and, in, and indeed in the, in the ordinal, which is the liturgy for laying all this out, it is required that you be ordained by a bishop, right? It's required that you be ordained by the laying out of hands. And furthermore, it is not allowed for anyone who's not ordained to serve in the capacities in which Anglican priests serve, right? So this has been the case uh, for, for all of Anglicanism's history. So, um, for instance, okay, uh, no one in our congregation is authorized to celebrate the Eucharist except licensed priests, okay? Um, and so when Father Canary came to Waco, I called the bishop and said, I need to get a license for Father Canary so that he can celebrate at Christ Church. And Bishop Iker granted that license. Um, why? Well, we know who ordained you, right? Um, and this is, this is how it works, okay? Um, so this is to express that continuity. And, and the focal point of this, of this continuity and indeed this unity within, uh, within the church Catholic is bishops. I need to say that clearly. Um, keep in mind, if you were a Christian in the ancient church, um, you didn't, I mean, it wasn't like you could hop on a plane and go to Rome, right? Um, chances are most people didn't do that. Um, but the bishops did meet in council, and they spent time meeting in, uh, in uh, more regional synods. And the reason that they did that was because the ancient church understood that the unity of the church was preserved by the relations between bishops. Um, how do you know still today whom you're in communion with? Your bishop. You know, uh, this is a rather shocking thing when my, when my bishop in California said, uh, well, no, you're not to receive communion there. So, and somebody said, well, why not? He said, because we're not in communion, right? <laughs> it was just that simple to him. Um, and this is to say that, uh, and this was specifically to priests that were asking this question, um, but it is to say that, that there's a great deal of need for uh, us to see again bishops as, as uh, an indicator of the visible unity of the church. Now, there is, in addition to this, um, there's a, a document which tends to hang out in prayer books called the Chicago Lambeth, Lambeth Quadrilateral. And one of the things, uh, and this was written in the late uh, 19th century for the purposes of defining uh, the boundaries uh, within which Anglicans could seek ecumenical relations. And uh, there are four, because it's quadrilateral, right? Uh, they are Holy Scripture, Okay. The sacraments of baptism in the Eucharist. Um, oh, Father, throw me a bone. Well, definitely the episcopate, right? Locally adapted, so bishops. Um, and I'm dying. Oh, well, it's something very important. <laughs> but you can look it up. Um, but the, the episcopate, the historic episcopate locally adapted, is, is, is considered to be uh, a necessity for Anglicans when it comes to uh, ecumenical relations. Okay? This is not something we can dispense with easily. It's, it's something we, ha- we have to have. Okay? Um, all right. Question 123. What grace does God give in ordination? In ordination, God confirms the gifts and callings of the candidates, conveys the gift to the Holy Spirit, for the office and work of bishop, priest, or deacon, and sets them apart to act on behalf of the church and in the name of Christ. Um, when I first felt the inklings of a call to the priesthood, I was 15 years old. Did that mean that I was automatically a priest? 
No, not at all. <laughs> um, it was a full 10 years, actually almost to the date later, that I was finally ordained. Um, it took years. It took committees. It took uh, psychological and psychiatric evaluations, right, which I surprisingly passed. Um, <laughs> it, took, uh, it took the bishop meeting with me multiple occasions, meeting with multiple lay people, spending time in seminary, right, in a rigorous spiritual formation environment, along with a rigorous academic environment. Um, it took a long time. And finally, on that day, uh, I, was, I was ordained a priest. I was ordained a deacon while I was still in seminary. But this is to say that, um, that nobody conveys to themselves the gifts of ordination, do they? That would be ridiculous. And, of course, it does happen in certain places. Uh, but, but this is to say that, that in the church, at least, it's understood that the calling is confirmed by the laying on of hands. Okay? Remember what happens. The deacons in, in Acts chapter 6... Uh, they meet certain qualifications. We know that. Which what, what is it? They be of good repute, right? Okay. Uh, in first, for instance, uh, uh, Titus. You read about Titus one. You read about the qualifications of a bishop. So there, there are qualifications, right, placed on this. Um, in addition to that, uh, there is there is the the very clear need for prayer for this. So usually accompanied by prayer and fasting. Um, it's considered that not only will the candidate be praying, but everyone else who's involved in the process will be praying as well. Um, and so having, having confirmed that gift, conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work. Okay. So what, what empowers uh, ordination is the Holy Spirit. Um, and... It is for two, for two ends. The office, right? So I hold an office, right? Yes? Okay. That's, that's if it were the badge, right? It says, uh, here it is. You, are, you hold the office, okay? It also includes the gun, yes? The work. So a badge and a gun, right? What kind of sheriff are you if you don't have a badge and a gun? Uh, <clears throat> and, and, you know, you know this, right? If you, how do you how do you know the difference between a security officer and a police officer? Their uniform, right? Um, you know, a security guard wears the badge of their company. They don't bear the badge of the city that uh, or the police department. Um, but it is to say that there's both the office and the work. Okay, um, and uh, this is true in, in a whole lot of ways. But go ahead. Oh, sorry. I will. That's coming. We actually have a question for each of those, so uh, we'll get through that. Uh, but but this is to say, there's both there's both the office and the work. Um, now now that's actually quite important um, because uh, uh, well I'll tell you a story. When I was a curate and I was a young curate, uh, I was having lunch with the rector, which I often did after Sunday mornings, and the rector uh, looked over and said, see that guy over there with his wife? And I said, yeah, I do. Uh, he said, you know, uh, he's been coming to church the last couple months. He, he's a priest. And I said, really? He's like, yeah. And now, now he said, don't tell anybody, because, <laughs> because he's, been, he's been deposed. Um, he's been removed from ministry. I said, oh, that's interesting. As I got to know this man, uh, I found out that he had been ordained as a young man, and he had uh, fallen into alcoholism. He was, uh, it was, and it was an awful phase of his life. But he had gotten into AA, indeed he had gotten into a Christian motorcycling group, and they would really, really ministered to this guy in, in amazing ways. And uh, through the years, he had, he had he'd sought sobriety, and he would gotten to it. And uh, so he, he attended as just a layman in our church for years. I went off to California, came back, and lo and behold, there's John wearing clericals in the church office. And I said, what happened? He's like, the bishop restored me. Okay, do you see what's going on? Um, he'd always had the gift of ordination, right? But he had been, he had been removed from the office for a time um, and was restored to that office. Now, the church teaches that, that the, the mark of ordination is not something which can be removed, right? Um, listen, not, even can, not, only can, not only can it not be removed in this life, it can't be removed ever. Um, uh, I will die a priest. I'll be vested a priest. My dead body will be vested, right? 
Um, and I, I, I think, you know, I know, I, I believe this. I'm an old dinosaur, but I believe I'll be a priest in heaven. So, <laughs> you know, quite against all odds, but there it is. All right. So let's, let's move on. What are the three ordained ministries in the Anglican Church? The three orders are bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, these three orders, so uh, there is holy orders as a whole, and then there are these three distinctive orders. Right? We see these, and I should point this out, we see these uh, in Scripture, although uh, I have to say there is, there is some manner of obscurity when it comes to reading Scripture and pulling these out. We do see all three uh, of these offices active in, uh, in the church, but there's some conflation at certain points. But by the end of the first century, indeed, certainly by the middle of the second, you have very clear delineations between these three orders of ministry. Now, in the Reformation, what happened uh, in a great number of churches was people said, you know, uh, the first thing you do in a revolution, what, you know, by the way, you know what the first thing you do in a revolution is, right? You kill all the lawyers, right? <laughs> and they thought, the first thing you do in a good reformation is you kill all the bishops. In some cases, this really actually happened. Uh, but in most cases, it was just, we need to get rid of bishops. Okay? And uh, indeed, in a lot of churches, like Presbyterians, right? They've maintained uh, the office of uh, the presbyterate, uh, the, the elders. Of course, how do they do it without bishops? Good question. Uh, but, but you see, there's this, there's this, there's this uh, uh, deal. We have, we have a uh, presbyteral polity. Um, in many places, they not only did away with bishops, but they did away with priests, and they did away with deacons. Okay? And in many places, they maintained a you know, kind of deacon's board in an interesting way. Uh, but, but it is to say that, uh, that in the ancient church, these three orders of ministry, uh, and indeed there are many other orders past that, um, which we can say more about if you want, but these are the three orders of, of ordained ministry. Um, and Anglicanism has maintained these, uh, kind of unique among the churches of the Reformation. Uh, except for things like, you know, the Swedish Lutherans have maintained it, apparently, uh, and a few others. So there you go. Um, okay, question 125. What is the work of bishops? The work of bishops is to represent and serve Christ and the church as chief pastors, to lead in preaching and teaching the faith, and in shepherding the faithful, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church, and to bless, confirm, and ordain, thus following in the tradition of the apostles. Um, Let's actually turn to, uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, to Titus 1 7, 1, 1, 7 through 9. <clears throat> Paul gives direction. Uh, to the choosing not only of uh, overseers, but of elders as well. Okay? Now, I'm going to explain this to you. In English, when they translate uh, the, the new, what, what language was the New Testament written in? Greek. Yay, Greek. <laughs> it's always Greek, right? Uh, and this is where I turn into the guy from uh, uh, my big fat Greek wedding, so you'll excuse, excuse me here. Um, but in Greek, the word for elder is presbyteros. Um, it is the word uh, meaning often bearded one, or uh, but it mostly means elder. Okay, and um, and so he he makes reference to this. He says, uh, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you." So you see this connection with I gave you this, and you are to put it into order by doing what? By appointing these elders. Okay, and in Greek, this is presbyteroi. Um, in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So there are qualifiers put on that. Can't just, uh, can't just appoint anyone as an elder, in this case, presbyteros. Now, I'm going to move on a little bit with that later. But for an overseer, and this word in the Greek is episkopos, um, and through the years, this gets handed down all the way into English uh, from episcopos to piscop to bishop to bishop, okay? Um, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So 
from verses like this and others, it's very clear that a, the role of a bishop is to guard and safeguard uh, the, the, the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. Um, and I should say that is taken quite seriously uh, by the bishops we have. Um, I remember one, one time when I was first ordained, uh, a priest in the diocese wrote a letter that could best be described as doctrinally innovative, I'll put it that way. <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly going with the times. Uh, and he received a very swift and very public rebuke from the bishop. Uh, I like to refer to that letter in Harry Potter terms. It was like a howler. Um, you know, in, in Harry Potter, the letter that kind of uh, opens itself up, turns into a mouth, and yells and screams. Uh, it was like that. I mean, I've, it was so strongly worded. It was, you are not ever to publish anything like that ever again. You are to teach only what has been received only what is in scripture and only uh, what is authorized uh, by the prayer book, et cetera, et cetera, and canons, et cetera, right? Uh, it, was, it was no. And he made him publish the letter to him in the parish newsletter. So first, first rule of thumb is don't run afoul of your bishop. <laughs> second, second, second is that's the bishop's job. Okay. Um, and, you know, there it is. Um, now, this is very important because... Uh, you know, uh, listen, that would happen to me too, friends, if I ever went off the rails. Um, and in fact, if I continued to persist, I would be removed because the bishop has that authority. Okay? Um, and, and by the way, you know, if you notice like Anglicans, this is funny, sort of funny thing, Anglican bishops are always and forever getting together and having meetings. It seems like they do nothing else but meet. Why do they meet? Because they hold a collegial discipline among themselves. Um, they hold one another accountable. Um, they actually talk about things like doctrine and discipline. Uh, because that's their charge. But let's get back to the positive work. They serve, they serve Christ in the church as chief pastors. You'll note when the bishop visits, he carries a crozier, which is the very, it's like, a, it is a shepherd's crook. And what do you do with a shepherd's crook? You put it around sheep's neck and you pull them back into the fold. Okay? So think about, think about my friend Father John. What had happened to him? He'd wandered from the fold. And what did the bishop do? He pulled him back in. Okay? He has that authority. Um, as chief pastors, meaning there are other pastors, like I, I'm a pastor, but they are the chief pastors. There's no one, and of course for Anglicans, there's no one above the bishop in terms of the hierarchy. Um, there's no pope, there's no, uh, you know, Going on, so on and so forth. To lead in preaching and teaching the faith, right? So it's the bishop's job to teach and to preach. Um, indeed, the bishop's called the chief catechists of the church. Um, in fact, uh, this is quite an interesting thing. Uh, you know, I serve almost as the bishop's extension into this congregation. His ministry is extended through me into this congregation. Um, I'm accountable to him. Uh, and by the way, uh, this, this is kind of an interesting thing as well. It's sort of surprising to some people that come into Anglicanism uh, who come from more uh, lay-ruled churches. Um, but do you, know who, do you know who is solely responsible for what's taught in this church? Well, the bishop, yes. But on a day-to-day -day basis, me. I am. Okay? So... Uh, and, and there's not like, it's not like the vestry gets together and says, Father, we don't really like your sermon. You're not allowed to preach like that anymore. You know what I would say? I would say, thank you for your opinion, but I'm going to continue to ignore it. Right? If you have a major complaint, I suggest you take it up with the bishop. Right? Okay. That's, that's the answer. Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, and in addition to that, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for the liturgy as well. Now, I'm not responsible for writing checks. Thank you, Jesus. Right? I'm not responsible for dealing with the finances. I work with Jeff and others as a team on that. Right? That's very important. Um, but the buck stops uh, with, with, the, with the priest in charge of a congregation. Okay. Um, 
Oh, yes, down to the bottom. And to bless, confirm, and ordain, thus following in the tradition of the apostles. So bishops bless things. They're constantly blessing things. Um, indeed, that's their job, right? Uh, you'll ever notice that when the, bishop, when the bishop visits, he blesses all kinds of people. He blesses people, things, children. Uh, indeed, if you've ever met Bishop Ackerman, you know, he's always, he's always running around blessing children, okay? Uh, because that's his job. It's his job to bless. Also to confirm. Uh, in Anglicanism, we don't let priests confirm uh, people. Uh, now, other churches do that, but uh, in Anglicanism, the bishops, it is the bishop's job alone to confirm, to pray for the, uh, pray for the increase of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we have to wait till the bishop comes to have confirmations. And also to ordain. Um, uh, now, you'll notice, it's quite interesting, uh, Priests participate in the laying on of hands when another priest is ordained. So uh, when Father Nicholas was ordained to the priesthood, I flew out to Florida, participated in the laying on of hands. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, but all that was required was for the bishop to do it. Okay. Um, bishops ordain. Um, and, and by the way, this is also interesting. Though there are all kinds of structures around who uh, are, that, that serve to protect uh, ordination and serve to make sure that those who are truly called are, are ordained, uh, that decision alone lies with the bishop alone. Okay? So a bishop can, is perfect. Now, this is not a good idea. But, <laughs> but is perfectly enabled to say, thank you for your recommendation to not ordain so-and-so, but I'm going to ignore it. Um, now, that, ne- that almost never happens. Um, but it is something they do. Okay. Shall we move on? Okay, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, there's a wonderful passage. So the question was about what do you do with a bishop who may not even believe anymore? What do you do with a bishop who uh, who may be disqualified for various reasons? Moral reasons, would that include it? Okay. Oh, sure, yeah. There, so there's, there's always a distinction drawn. I, I think this is kind of foreign to some people, but... Um, Augustine, Augustine actually answers this question at one point. He says, I reply that they are not bishops. Okay. Now, what does he mean by that? You've got to break it down. Okay. Uh, what he means is that uh, just as it may be that someone is baptized, and what do you call someone who's baptized? A Christian, right? What happens if they deny the faith? Or they persist in serious sin? How do you respond? You respond that they are baptized. They, they bear, this is, this is Augustine's response. They bear the sacramental badge, but are not what that badge signifies, right? Um, and so I would say that, that, um, that they may be very bad bishops, okay? Uh, they're certainly not uh, bishops who should be allowed to serve and who, uh, they're certainly bishops that would not have, uh, not have the collegiality of the rest of bishops, yes? So this is often something that's happened is that uh, bishops will be, uh, will be, uh, put out, okay. Um, doesn't happen so much anymore, but it should. I think I think it should happen more often. Um, and that's simply to say, now, now, however, if they repent and they return, are they reconsecrated? No, not at all. So do you see? There's a bit of a nuance to it, right? Does that answer your question? Right. Well, A, that's the reason that there are three bishops always in a consecration. Uh, it's also the reason that, um, that it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even really matter then. Um, so long as, and this is the point, so long as you are in communion with the bishops that you need to be in communion with, then it's considered, it's considered valid. Um, and that's, that's the key. So I think there's that, there's that need to, to be clear. And I should say as well, um, when I was in Stockton, I worked, one of, my, one of the priests on my staff was a, uh, he had been, he had actually been ordained by Pope Paul VI, right? Was he reordained when he became an Anglican? No. Um, why? Why would you do that? Uh, so, so this is just to say that um, that that's that's one of the realities of this. It, it's and 
thank yeah. What I would also say is, thank goodness that's not my my domain to have to think through that stuff. That belongs with the bishops. Um, all right, we'll move on. What is the work of priests? The work of priests serving Christ under their bishops is to nurture congregations through the full ministry of the word preached and the sacraments rightly administered, and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Okay, all of this is laid out, in fact, in the ordination rite for priests. Um, the priest is, uh, well, let's say a little bit about that. <laughs> the, the, when, when, a, when a priest is ordained, um, he is examined um, liturgically, he is he he swears oaths of conformity, <laughs> and in addition to that, um, he is he is duly consecrated, um, and the consecration happens with uh, oil of chrism and the laying on of hands. Uh, the priest's hands are in fact anointed with oil, um, and they're 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 set apart in this way, um, and what they're set to, and indeed even if you watch if you watch this. They're handed things like you're handed a chalice, you're handed bread and wine, you're handed vestments, you're handed a Bible, and with everything you're handed, you're you're given charges, right, uh, to take these authorities that you've been given. Um, the work of priests serving Christ under their bishops is to nurture congregations through the full ministry of the word preached. Okay, so that's the first thing: is the word is preached. And sacraments rightly administered. Um, so we have every Sunday, as I've noted before, we have the ministry of word and sacrament every single Sunday. In addition to that is to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Um, so I spend a good amount of time every week um, offering absolution, uh, offering confession, and granting that absolution. Um, indeed, in the, in the Anglican ordination rites, it has always been that the priest is told, whoever sins you're forgiven, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you're retained, they're retained. Okay. Um, and that authority to pronounce absolution is given. Also, the authority to grant blessing. So one of the, one of the really the best parts of going to, a priesthood ordina- to an ordination to the priesthood is that at the end, everyone processes out. Uh, and, and in our diocese, anyway, the bishop immediately drops to his knees in front of this new priest and asks for his blessing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to get through. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's beautiful, right? It's this idea that, yes, uh, we want to receive that blessing. And, and then the priest goes up to the, up to the front of the church and offers blessings there, um, first to his family and then to everyone who's there. Um, this this demand for blessing is high. Okay, uh, now why do we need blessing? Jeez, I mean, I'm a Christian, right? Why do I need blessing? Why do I need to be blessed? Why do I need to have my house blessed? Why does it matter? Okay, <laughs> it's time to take a step back. If you could only see the unseen realities present in this very room, you would shriek in horrific horror at what you see in one side, and then on the other side, you would shriek in the magnificence and splendor of what you see. We live in a world that is characterized by both visible and invisible realities, and because our dominant um, sense is sight, we are, we are lulled into believing that the only things that exist are the things that I can see with my eyes. And yet, don't we know that there's something else going on? We do. Um, we need blessing. We need it immensely. Um, we need it in order to function in this uh, world of both seen and unseen. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, we priests offer house blessings, yes? You know, in Epiphany, we'll, you know, the four of us will go around blessing houses, uh, which is just so much fun. So please don't hesitate to ask for that. Uh, and get, you know, get your address and tell us when we can show up, and we'll show up. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, I should say as well, um, you know, I've often sent people into very difficult situations. Um, I've often been there when people are heading into the absolute worst things that can happen in life. And, um, and I, I, 
I find there's nothing really else to do but just give this priestly blessing. Um, we, we need that. We really do. Okay. I mean, remember that the, the whole covenant of, with, with Israel is, is lost through blessing, <laughs> through a lack of it. Um, all right. What is the work of deacons? The work of deacons serving Christ under their bishops is to assist priests in public worship, instruct both young and old in the catechism, and care for those in need. All right. uh, the word in Greek, diakonos, refers simply to servant, um, and it's, uh, it's used regularly throughout the scriptures. Uh, it's understood when the apostles are, are, uh, are growing weary of constantly serving tables, right? Constantly weary of serving food and meals and uh, all the things that surround that. And because there's a bit of a dispute as to some are getting more than others. <laughs> um, they say, we're going we're gonna to ordain five deacons to do this. Um, Deacons, and I should say, there's no small amount of controversy when it comes to the order of deacons, uh, but um, I, would, I would say this. Um, deacons primarily, primarily, serve the church. Um, they're shown in scripture, serving the church. But they're also shown serving outside the church uh, in the world at large. Um, you'll note uh, the very first martyr in the church, Stephen. Um, he's full of good works, constantly uh, doing all these things. And he, uh, when, he, when he's, when he's uh, murdered in the streets by stoning, um, you know, he prays for, he prays for those who, who, who killed him. Um, he, is, he is constantly engaged in this, in this work of mercy. Um, so I want to, and that's been a long tradition among deacons, is to serve in works of mercy. You, know, you may know this, that uh, St. Francis was a deacon. He was ordained to the diaconate. Um, one of my favorites, St. Lawrence, was a deacon, right? Um, and indeed, every priest is also a deacon. Why are we also a deacon? Why do we mess with that? Oh, because, because we need the humility of it, right? I need to be reminded all the time that, you know, yeah, you need to do the dishes and clean the toilets just like everyone else. That's important. Um, and so, and so we do. Um, I'll never forget when, when we lived, you may remember this, when we were in California, um, the bishop on, uh, the week before Holy Week would host a lunch and it was a very simple lunch, just sandwiches and things. But after the lunch, he was nowhere to be seen because he was in the kitchen doing dishes. Um, he remembered that he too served in that role. Um, so there's a work of service for the church, constant service. All right. Um, and indeed, some of, the, some of the holiest bishops I've ever known uh, are constantly serving. Um, I remember uh, the, the uh, Orthodox Church in America, Archbishop um, Dimitri up in Dallas, was constantly going around in the parish hall saying, can I get you a cup of coffee? It was things like that. He was just very welcoming. And he would host dinners in his house just that were... Uh, I never got to go to one, but they were apparently amazing. <laughs> um, and, and he was constantly hosting people, constantly offering hospitality. Um, you'll note that if you remember that, that, uh, that text from uh, Titus 1, that, that bishops are required to be hospitable. Hospitality is a ministry which is required. Um, okay, well, should we say a bit about marriage? Because we're going to definitely say a lot, about, a lot more about it next week. But let's say a bit of, just to preview what your appetites. Oh, go ahead. Oh my! You've opened the you've opened, you've opened the very can of worms I was hoping to avoid. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, let me uh, let me uh, let me bring some clarity. Um, since the 1950s, um, and indeed in some some cases earlier, um, well, I'll put it this way. Um, actually, let's go all the way back. Okay, in the ancient church, we know that there was a role. Uh, for women called the order of deaconesses. Um, there was a very specific role that was needed um, for several reasons, and we can surmise them through various sources. Um, one is uh, that it would be unseemly for a man to go into a, a woman's house, and especially if she was the victim of, of abuse by her, at the hand of her husband, it would be unseemly for a man to go in and inspect uh, for the purposes of holding discipline in the church. Um, so men, so men were not allowed to do that. Deaconesses did it. 
Um, they were always, uh, they were always, in a sense, a bit like consecrated virgins in that way. Um, they also uh, maintained the dignity of women as they were being baptized, always nude as well. So uh, people in those in the first several centuries were always baptized nude. Um, in addition to that, there's there's a great need for some, especially uh, widows who wanted to become Christians. Um, to be instructed, and we, we, we can surmise that deaconesses did that work as well. Okay? So there's a full order of uh, deaconesses for that purpose. Um, and, and largely that disappeared in the Western Church. Um, it disappeared in Anglicanism until the late 19th century and was brought back. And then in the 1950s, there was, there was this thought, said, you know, uh, in Scripture, we really don't see that there's a difference between uh, deaconesses and deacons, which may or may not be the case. Uh, so they conflated the two. And then in the 1970s, um, in this country, uh, in an act of, uh, really, I mean, I should say this, canonical violence, uh, women were ordained to the priesthood. There was without any, any authority by uh, the bishops, any authority by the church acting as a whole. Uh, it was a very divisive thing at the time. Um, and so that state of, of uh, chaos has actually continued even into, even into the Anglican Church in North America. Um, it has never been um, dealt with in a in an ecclesial and theological manner. Um, and indeed, for many, it's, it's very regrettable. Um, because here's, here's, here's the problem, if I can just lay it out. Either the orders which we have are those of the ancient church, or they are not. Um, either we maintain things as they've been given to us, or we don't. Um, and so, uh, for many, it's been seen as rather shocking. It's like a lot of things have been unseated through this. Um, and I should note as well, I mean, this is, this is part of the concern that, that I carry forward is um, looking to Scripture, looking to the practices of the ancient church, the most that we can possibly ever say about women's ordination is maybe. And when it comes to sure and certain sacraments, maybe isn't good enough. I'm sorry to say that. I mean, I know that's kind of offensive to modern sensibilities, but that's the truth, right? It's to say, you know, I could wish it all day long to be the case, but wishing it doesn't make it true. Um, now, of course, there are those who say, listen, we, we've learned a lot about how things are and how things really should be. Um, and, and to which I say, um, our, we, we must maintain. That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the callings of, of Christians today is to maintain um, in the face of, of, a, of a desire to be acceptable, to innovate, to do all kinds of things. Um, so, uh, so in this diocese, um, uh, women have been ordained to the diaconate, but not to the priesthood. Um, that's part of that whole way of doing things. Um, in most of the dioceses in Acna, uh, women are not ordained to the priesthood at all, uh, but in some they are. Um, and that, that causes some division, I should say. It causes no small amount of division. Um, and in Acna as well, um, there, is, there was a determination from the start uh, that, uh, that the episcopate would be restricted to men, 35 and older, um, and that was for the purposes of maintaining what unity they could uh, among the bishops. Um, it, is, it continues to be a very divisive, a very divisive issue, um, and, and largely it's for the reason that, um, listen, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a Catholic and sacramental Christian, your unity is in Christ, received in the sacraments, okay? And when there's a disruption of that unity, it's very serious. It's not just like, oh, well, you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, and so we're a church. That's not it. Um, that's not how it works. Um, it is that we are joined together in a sacramental reality. And when there's disruption in that sacramental reality, the whole thing breaks down very quickly. Um, so... Um, there's a lot more that I could say about it and would be happy to afterwards, but, uh, but, but I, will, I will simply say that, the, that the, the, uh, the policy of our bishop is one that I support. I've supported it for a long, long time. Um, I, uh, I will, however, say this, and this is, you know, let's, let's end here. Okay. I fully support the ministry of women in the church, okay? Let's just get that completely clear, right? I don't support women's ordination in any way. Do you see the distinction? I support the ministry of women in teaching, in offering spiritual direction, in doing all manner of things, okay? So, and this is where it's really interesting, right? 
So like, how can I even say this? All right. So, I mean, for a lot of people, the way they see ministry is not in terms of holy orders, but in terms of like, yeah, you do ministry, and we recognize you as, as the church that you do ministry. How great is that? Well, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Windsor Nation, right? So this is a really, this is a really important thing to get. Um, so I would say, yes, we fully support women's ministry. I mean, no, look around you. I mean, women's ministry flourishes in our parish, as it should, right? Um, but we maintain, uh, we maintain Catholic order all the while um, because we take the unity of the church seriously, um, or, or I do. And, I, you know. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I want to I just say that there's a, there's a very positive aspect to this, is there not? Um, it's, it's simply to say that um, my job, my job is, is really, it is, to stand before you and say, this is the body of Christ. And to believe it and know it and, as, as, and, and to assure you of it, week after week after week after week after week. Um, so, I, I suppose that's all. If you want to talk more about it, I'm happy to. And, and there's, there's, there are a million more things that could be said, uh, such as could never be written in any book. But, uh, but it is to say that uh, it's, uh, it continues to be a divisive and rather, uh, rather hotly debated issue. And, and there's a process to uh, talk about it continually going on in, 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 our, in our church, right? Um, and, and recommendations will be made at some point, and, uh, we'll, and I don't know what they'll be. So um, go ahead. A council, yeah, um, yeah. I would love that, right? Uh, the the problem, if I can be blunt about it, the the problem with Anglican councils like the Lambeth Conference is that they tend to be tea parties, not in the American sense, but they they tend to be like garden parties essentially, where it's like, oh, have you met my friend so and so? And and there's just kind of like this conviviality that goes on, but they don't really deal with anything of substance. They take a nice picture and then they then they move on, um, and. And in 1997, they dealt with something very swiftly, and it was sort of like people were offended that they dealt with something serious. Um, but, but that's a classic position is, let's just all get together and have tea. Um, and um, so there's not an inclination to deal with it. In fact, what the, what the inclination has been to do has been to say, well, there's a, there, there are dual integrities here. Um, now, how that's possible, I don't know. Um, but it's to say that, that, uh, that uh, the issue has not been resolved and and I, I would even say likely won't be. Um, the, the question is, and I think this is really, really key, is, um, and, and it's an important question, right? It's, if this is, if this is, the, uh, if this is the issue uh, where, whereupon you're willing to uh, sacrifice the unity of the church, right? Not a good place to be. Um, then, then it's problematic, right? Um, despite your convictions, it's problematic. Um, and I would simply, I would simply offer that um, that uh, well, no one in the church ever gets to decide anything unilaterally. Okay, um, that's not how it works. We live in a, we live as part of a communion of people, right? We need each other. We can't just sort of say, "I don't need you." Remember what Paul says about that? That you know, the, the foot can't say to the head, "I don't need you," right? Um, very, we, we do need each other. So, so that's, a, that's an important thing just to keep in mind as you, as you maybe think about that or read upon that. So anyway, thank you all. We'll begin next week with marriage. Another completely uncontroversial subject. <laughs> <laughs>